Good morning, church family. We are glad that you're here today with us. We're glad that we can worship together virtually. Uh, this is the last lesson in our series on questions. Uh, Patrick started the series when he said that there's 307 questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels. Questions help clarify how a person really thinks, not just what are commonly held beliefs, not just what is common practice. And I love that Jesus asked so many questions. The one that we're going to look at today in Mark 8 is the most important question. We've got a lot of debate going on these days. Wear masks or not wear masks. Quarantine or herd immunity. Kneel or don't kneel. Democrat or Republican. And how do we battle systemic racism? All these things are important, but they also have a tendency to divide us because we usually pick a side. That can distract the church from what is most important. And I think Jesus would answer a lot of these debates the way he answered the questions to pay taxes to Rome or not. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, what is his, but your heart should belong to me. In other words, don't let these things distract you from what is most important. All right, our scripture today, Mark chapter 8. This is where Patrick was when he started a couple of weeks ago in Mark 8. And Caleb last week was in Mark 9. So we're going to go back to the end of Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Through 29. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. So Jesus kind of has this icebreaker question, this who do people say I am? I'm sure he's fairly interested in that, but not, not real interested in that. He's mostly interested in his next question, who do you say I am? What he was trying to get across to his disciples was most important. And then that's when Peter gives his confession of faith. And that is also important to Jesus, who he is with. When he is talking to them, he is talking to them personally. He did that with Pilate. When Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, is that your question or is that someone else's question? He was trying to say, Pilate, are you personally invested in asking that question? And that's how Jesus is with all of us. There's a lot of other questions, uh, a lot of other examples of confessions like Peter. Uh, so just in the Gospel of John, we'll start in John chapter 1. At the beginning, Jesus is calling his disciples. He calls Andrew, and Andrew goes and finds his brother Simon Peter. He calls Philip, and Philip goes and, calls, goes and finds Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 49. And that's when Nathaniel said, can there anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet when Jesus told him, hey, I saw you under the fig tree, he says, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And then in chapter 4, verse 29 in John, Jesus has this conversation with a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman shows her belief that he is the Messiah. We'll come back to that one. Then in John chapter 7, verse 26, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, continues to teach in the temple. And then some of the people in Jerusalem, they're saying, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? In other words, do they believe he's the Messiah? And then in chapter 11, verse 27, Martha after her brother Lazarus has died, Jesus says to Martha, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. And then Martha responds, 
I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And at the end, in John chapter 20, verse 28, Thomas, our friend doubting Thomas, his doubt turns to faith. And when Jesus shows him the wounds, he says, my Lord and my God. This idea of Jesus being the Messiah and Christ, they both, words in Hebrew and Greek, both mean the anointed one. There's also a term that Matthew uses in his gospel over and over again, son of David. So some examples of that. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, two blind men call out to Jesus, calling him, son of David, have mercy on us. And then in chapter 12, verse 23, after the healing of a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, the witnesses said, could this be the son of David? And then in chapter 15, verse 22, a Canaanite woman cries out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. In chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, we have two more blind men shouting, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And then the next chapter in chapter 21, at the triumphal entry, the crowds that went ahead of him and followed behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. In chapter 22, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees replied, the son of David. Context for the first century Jews, New Testament, they see the Messiah as Christ, as the king, as the son of David in the line, and in, in his uh, line of, of just like other kings follow. So that's their context, that's their thinking, and sometimes we miss out on that. All right, let's go back to John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. I love this example. Starting in, toward the end of the conversation in verse 25, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, this is very interesting because there's only one or two times in the New Testament where Jesus refers to himself as the Messiah. Then in verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well, ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. And then skipping some verses down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. And now we know that he is indeed savior of the world. Jesus hesitated using the term Messiah because of the contextual misunderstanding by the Jews of what the Messiah would actually do. Instead of calling himself the Messiah, he usually chose to call himself the Son of Man. This makes Peter's confession that you are the Messiah that much more impressive because it was against his cultural context of understanding what the Messiah was to be about. Which brings the question, what misunderstandings might we have about Jesus or what it truly means to follow him. You may say, no, we, we know, we've been studying the Bible for years. We know much more than the first century Jews. We understand it all. 
they had been studying the Bible for years. They knew it backwards and forwards, and yet they still got some misunderstandings. We might get off track a little bit, which leads to other misunderstandings. For example, even just the term Jesus Christ to us, we, uh, many times we think of that as his first and last name. The anointed one was a title, anointed one, king, lord, son of David. This is in Matthew 1, 1, the first verse of the New Testament. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. This is the context of the whole Bible, that Jesus is king. My wife and I lived in Thailand for five years. The king of Thailand while we were there, uh, Pumipon Adunyadet, which I just called him the king, he reigned for 70 years, second longest reign ever, and the longest in world history as an adult. He became king as an adult, reigned into his 90s, and, and, and then died uh, a few years back. Thailand was more of a constitutional monarchy with a prime minister, but it gave me a different perspective because they had a king. They had two major political parties with two more rather strong parties. And after one of the more recent coups, they have officials from 26 different parties in their government, in their elected government, which is something I would like to see here. Uh, I'm not sure how it is now in Thailand, but when we lived there, the king had everyone's respect. And when the king said something, it was done. During one coup while we were there, one in which we didn't know much of what was going on because the media there wouldn't show anything on TV, the newspapers wouldn't print anything. My mom was scared to death because she was think seeing things here on CNN that we had no idea were going on, uh, which sometimes is beneficial. Uh, well, what happened was the prime minister and the general, the military general that were in this fight, they, you know, argued back and forth for a couple of weeks, things kind of shut down, the king just kind of sat back and watched, and then after a couple of weeks, all of a sudden you heard that the king was meeting with the prime minister and this military general leading the coup. And guess what? The next day, everything was settled, everything was over, it was back to business as usual. When the king said something, all the people of Thailand followed. This is one thing we fail to understand living in America. We forget Jesus is king, and maybe more importantly, do we even understand what king means? What did Jesus' audience think about the Messiah and the kingdom of heaven? The Jews were thinking that the Messiah would establish their independence from Rome. Why? Well, because Rome was full of pagans and the Jews were the people of God. How could God continually allow pagans to rule instead of his own chosen people? That's what they thought. Sometimes maybe that's what we think too. But God had a different plan and a different strategy, and Jesus came to fulfill that plan. N.T. Wright says it may be an oversimplification, but there were three basic options for first century Jews. Number one, you could separate yourselves like the Qumran community did with the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, separate yourselves from the rest of society. Just wait to see what God is going to do. Number two, you could make compromises in the culture like Herod did and then hope that that'll be okay and pass with God. Or three, you could say your prayer, sharpen your sword, and prepare to fight a holy war and trust God that he will give you victory like he had so many times before. By the way, Jesus did not choose either of these three options. God's plan was to save the whole world from its biggest problem, sin. He chose to do that through Jesus, 
And that is why Jesus' question, who do you say I am, is the most important question. Jesus redefined the concept of Messiah or king. With Peter, uh, he redefined the concept in regards to death. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to die. And Peter said, no, you're not. And Jesus rebuked him for it. Uh, with the disciples, Jesus said, I didn't come to serve. Uh, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then he showed them humility by washing their feet. When he came into Jerusalem uh, in, the triumph, in the triumphal entry with everybody shouting around him, you know, here's the Messiah. Here's the son of David. He came in riding on a donkey showing peace rather than that he was going to lead them to war. Uh, and then with Pilate, he was like, Pilate, you know, asked him about his kingdom, and Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus does not ask us, where are you from? He doesn't ask us, what have you done? He doesn't ask you, what can you do? He simply asks, who do you think he is? Are you willing to confess that publicly? And will you make that your life's number one priority that outweighs everything else? I love each and every one of you deeply. And I may say some things here in the next couple of minutes that sound like criticism uh, or judgment. And that's because it probably is criticism. But know that I am speaking in generalities. Uh, I have grace for every individual because God extends his grace to me. I like the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you have failed the test of genuine faith. So it's up to each individual listening to listen to what God's spirit is putting on their heart. So for the application part of this lesson, the most important part, in this same passage where Peter makes his confession in Luke chapter 9, Jesus asks another question. What benefit is it if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? And that question is significant today. I consider myself a realistic optimist. My optimism is rooted in my faith, or more accurately, in God. God can do anything. He's loving He's a forgiving God. The realist in me says that God has given us many chances to repent as a, as a nation in the last 50 years, and we have not done it to his satisfaction. My reading of scripture tells me that he will not relent forever without true repentance. Just this year, Woodbury, as a church, we've had lessons on God's word. We've had lessons on prayer, on revival. We've encouraged everyone to take part in the 40 days of prayer. We've had daily videos that encouraged prayer and revival. And there are times when I wonder if the church as a whole is getting the message that God is really wanting to give us. So parents and grandparents, you need to be the voice in your family. If we do not repent and turn back to God, this country will not be a pretty sight. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not talking about our economy. I'm talking about spiritual health versus spiritual darkness. It may not happen anytime soon, but it, I'm afraid that in within the next generation it could. Adam Wainwright, a pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. I've been 
he does a daily Bible study and, and commentary that you can follow on Twitter or by email. I really like doing it every morning. And he says, we all need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. <clears throat> Young people, which for me, I'm anyone under the age of 30. Hear this. Read God's word more than you have in your life. And pray more than you ever have in your life. Otherwise, you may not have the strength to survive spiritually. That is what Jesus is talking about with this question. Uh, spiritual survival. The optimist in me thinks revival will come. But I don't know. One thing I do know. God is in control and eternity does not hang in the balance. What does it look like to make Jesus king and Lord of your life? Uh, I'll give you an illustration. It's from 2 Kings chapter 13. Elisha is basically on his deathbed. He's, he's dying, and the king Jehoash comes to him and wants to talk with him one more time. And Elisha tells him a story, gives him some instructions. It's kind of an object lesson. He says, shoot some arrows out a window. And the king shoots three arrows out the window. Elisha rebukes him and says that he should have shot five or six. And it's an object lesson on defeating the Arameans. Uh, and he's basically saying, if God is telling you to do something, don't do it halfway. Don't put your trust in God halfway. Empty your quiver. Shoot every arrow. Do everything you can to follow God's will and his advice. So the question for us, will we sort of trust or half trust in God? Or will we trust wholeheartedly? Will you do a few things and hope that is enough? Or will you do all you can? It reminds me of a quote, and I don't remember who said it. Christianity makes a terrible hobby. One more illustration. Uh, can I brag on my wife for a little bit? Uh, she works in a long-term care facility where, thankfully, they have not yet had a case of COVID. She had a co-worker who gave her a note saying that she had been struggling a little and praying for a good Christian friend. She said that one of the reasons she was struggling was that she had not met many Christians whose hearts were truly seeking him. I wonder if that's an indictment on much of America or much of the world. God calls us in, but he calls us in so that we can reach out. If we are not having these experiences with our coworkers or our neighbors, then maybe we're not emptying our quiver. What is God laying on your heart? Listen to him. If you have not made Jesus Lord and King of your life, then you must do it. If you have done that years ago, but have failed to empty your quiver, then please begin to do that and do not delay. If Jesus is King and Lord, then we will do everything we can. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Jesus asked lots of questions, but ultimately... This is the only one that matters. Who do you say that I am? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are uh, thankful for your sacrifice, for how you have 
um, redefined the term Savior of the world, Messiah and King. You did not come to be served, but you came as a part of God's master plan. Um, Father, I pray uh, with thankful hearts, I pray that you will forgive us for when we have followed our own way, when we have followed after our own desires, and that we have not served you fully, that we have not listened to the king, uh, not listened to the creator of the world, and, and fully served you. I pray that we will do that. I pray uh, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. I pray for the hearts of Christians to rise up uh, and love you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.